Section 44 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Chameleon. Section 44. Attila by Ludwig Schmidt. The Huns, who were divided into numerous distinct tribes ruled by separate princes, had, since the beginning of the 5th century, begun to draw together into a closer political union. King Rua had already united a large part of the nation under his sceptre. He ruled especially over the tribes that inhabited the plains of Hungary. Numerous alien barbaric peoples, Slavs, Germans, Sarmatians, etc., were under his sway. The Eastern Empire paid him a yearly tribute. He was on friendly terms with Aetius, the general of the Western Empire, who on this account gave up to him a part of Pannonia, the province of Sarvia. Rua's successors were his nephews, Pleda and Attila, the sons of Munzuk. They first of all reigned jointly, each ruling over a definite number of tribes, but maintaining the unity of their empire, while in questions of foreign politics, both rulers cooperated. Pleda's personality traditionally fades into obscurity beside Attila's. Attila was hideous to look upon, Little, broad-shouldered, with big head, flat nose and scanty beard. He was covetous, vain and, like all despots, careful in the preservation of the outward appearance of dignity. He was superstitious, unable to read or write, but of penetrating intellect. He was cunning, audacious and skilled in all the arts of diplomacy. He is most fitly compared to the formidable Mongol king Genghis Khan. Like him, he was a mere conqueror who aimed at destruction and plunder. His supremacy had, therefore, only the effect of a devastating tornado, not that of a purifying thunderstorm which wakes nature to new life. Certainly, he did not rival the Mongol in cruelty and violence. A wise calculation prevented him from totally laying waste to the territory given over to him. He respected the law of nations and could be just and magnanimous towards his enemies. Though surrounded by great pomp, he remained simple and moderate in his manner of life. He would sit at meals with a stern and earnest countenance, without taking any part in the revelry going on around him. The policy of concentrating authority within the nation and extending it externally, which was introduced by Rua, was consciously developed by Bleda and Attila, especially by the latter after he had, in 444 or 445, attained to exclusive dominion by setting aside his brother and co-ruler. About the year 435, the Sorazgi, possibly a people of Turkish origin, domiciled in South Russia, as well as other Scythian races, were subdued. The Akatziri, living in the district to the north of the Black Sea, who hitherto had been in alliance with the Huns, were obliged to acknowledge Attila's rule, and he placed his eldest son, Elak, at their head as sub-king. The king of the Huns even thought of extending the eastern frontier of his empire to Medea and Persia. Among the barbarians tributary to him were besides the Alani numerous Slav tribes, some of which lived east of the Vistula, while others, driven out by the Huns, had settled in the Danubian lands, as had in particular the Teutons of the Danube Basin. Gepidae, Ostrogoths, Heruli, Rugi, Tsiri, Tursilingi, Suevi, certainly other names of German tribes are mentioned as under Attila's dominion. Marcomani, Bastarnae, Burgundians, Bructeri, 
Franks, and perhaps Alemanni on the Neckar, but it is doubtful to whom they were subject. The Burgundians, who had previously in the year 430 successfully repelled a Hunnic host, the Bructon, the Franks and the Germans on the Neckar, must have voluntarily joined the Huns during the great march to Gaul, so that we are scarcely justified in advancing the western frontier of the Huns as far as the Rhine. The Germans occupy a conspicuous place in the circle around Attila. It is related of Adaric, the king of the Gepidae, that he enjoyed a special consideration from Attila on account of his fidelity, and that his advice was not without influence on the decisions of the king of the Huns. Among his trusted counsellors is mentioned, besides the famous warrior prince of the Siri, Edeko, Odovacar's father, who in the year 449 was sent to Constantinople as ambassador. The Ostrogoth king, Valamir, is also said, though by a biased and not unimpeachable authority, to have enjoyed Attila's favour. Thus the German peoples mostly maintained their autonomy, and were generally only obliged to serve in the army, while other inferior subject races, in particular the Slavs, forfeited their independence, and were compelled to feed their rulers with the produce of their farms and cattle. Yet Attila looked upon all subjugated peoples as his slaves, and asserted an absolute right of disposing of their life and property. All attempts to withdraw from his sovereignty he punished with terrible cruelty. The demand for delivery of fugitives, therefore, played an important part in his negotiations with the Romans. We are, as is natural, mostly accurately informed of his relations with the two halves of the Roman Empire. Like Rua, Attila maintained a friendship with Aetius, at whose disposal he repeatedly placed Hunnish mercenaries. This relationship was partly brought about by personal conditions, partly by the endeavour of Attila to divide the Roman power. With such auxiliaries, the general of the Western Empire destroyed at Worms the Burgundian kingdom of legendary fame, an event which later tradition and saga have turned into an expedition of Attila's against the Burgundians. Numbers of Huns served in the Roman army, which, in the same way, in 436 to 439, fought against the Visigoths. On his side, Aetius sent to the king a learned Roman scribe, Constantius, as private secretary, and gave him his own son Carpillo as hostage, for which, in return, he was honoured with gifts. The office, also, of a magister militum, which Attila held, he seems to have obtained through the Western Empire. The tribute which was paid to him from thence was disguised under the name of a salary as Roman general-in-chief. But at the end of the year 440, serious troubles already disturbed these relations, because Attila repeatedly annoyed the Western Empire and terrified it with threats under the pretext that fugitives from his dominion had found refuge there. The same degrading treatment must have befallen the Eastern Roman Empire, which was under the sovereignty of the incapable emperor Theodosius II. A complete overthrow and destruction of the Eastern Empire was not Attila's intention. His policy, on the contrary, aimed at keeping it, by continual extortions of money and actual depredations, in a state of permanent weakness and incapacity to resist. And, as he insisted that all deserters should be given up to him, he deprived the Romans of the means of strengthening their army by recruiting among the barbaric peoples of the Danube lands. These leading ideas came clearly to light at once in the first treaty which the two kings of the Huns concluded with the emperor soon after their accession. 
it was agreed that the Romans should no longer receive fugitive from the Huns, and that these, as well as the Roman prisoners of war who had escaped from the country of the Huns, should be given up unless a ransom was paid for each of the latter. Besides, the emperor must not assist any barbarian people that was fighting against the Huns. Between both the kingdoms there was to be free commercial intercourse. The tribute of the Romans was doubled and raised to £700 of gold. It was clear that the Huns would not be contented with success so easily gained. If they nevertheless kept the peace for eight years, it is only because they were occupied with the subjection of the various Scythian peoples to the north of the Danube. In the year 441, they were on the warpath and slaughtered the Romans who had come on account of a market to the bank of the Danube. A direct reason for the opening of hostilities was given to them by the East Roman expedition against the Vandals which had occasioned the withdrawal of frontier troops. This coincidence of events has given rise to the groundless supposition that Gaiseric and Attila had at that time formed an alliance. To the Emperor's expostulation, the kings replied that the Romans had not paid the tribute regularly, had sheltered deserters, and also that the Bishop of Margus had robbed the Hunnish royal graves of their treasures, and they threatened him with a continuation of the war unless the fugitives and the bishop were handed over to them. As the imperial envoys refused everything, the Huns captured the Danube forts, Ratiaria, Viminacium, Singidunum and Margus the last through the treachery of the bishop who was afraid of being delivered up, and pressed devastating as they went into the interior of the Balkan lands as far as the neighbourhood of Constantinople, where they conquered cities like Naissus, Philippopolis and Arcadiopolis. Other Hunnish bands joined with the Persians, made an inroad at the same time over the Caucasus into the frontier lands of the Eastern Empire. The Roman army, which had in the meantime been called from Sicily by Theodosius, was decisively beaten in the Thracian Chersonesus. The kings of the Huns dictated peace, and its conditions were still more disgraceful than before. The yearly tribute was raised to £2,100 of gold, besides the stipulation of the payment of an indemnity of £6,000 of gold, and the surrender of fugitives was insisted upon. Already in the year 447, the Huns invaded once more and again brought the most terrible calamities upon the Balkan lands. Arne Gisclus, the general who opposed the enemy, was beaten and killed after valiant resistance on the river Utus in Lower Moesia, after which the Hunnish cavalry pressed up the valley of the river Margus and through Thessaly as far as Thermopylae. Some 70 cities and fortresses are said to have fallen victims to them at that time. When, in the year 448, peace was again concluded, Attila demanded that besides the usual money payments, a broad tract of a five days journey on the right bank of the Danube from Singindium to Nove should be left waste. The boundary was placed at Niasus. But even now Attila would not leave the emperor at peace. Embassy after embassy went to Constantinople and, on the standing pretext that not all deserters had yet been delivered up, continually asserted fresh humiliating claims, the king being, however, chiefly desirous of giving his messengers an opportunity of enriching themselves with the customary gifts. The Eastern Empire was near to a financial collapse as it could not exert itself to armed resistance. The thought came to the imperial government, that is to say, to the court eunuch Chrysaphius in particular, of getting rid of the king of the Huns by murder 
For this deed the cooperation of the Syrian prince Adeko was sought. He declared himself ready to assist, but immediately betrayed the plan to Attila. The king revenged himself only by scorning the despicable enemy. The Roman envoys who had come with Adeko to him, amongst whom was the historian Priscus, he allowed to withdraw, respecting the law of nations. He promised besides to maintain the peace and give up the waste frontier of the Danube, and he did not once press the demand made in his first anger that Chrysaphius should be put to death. But he sent word to the emperor that as Attila was a king's son, so was Theodosius an emperor's son, but that as the latter had rendered himself tributary to the former, he thus became his slave, and that it was a shameful action that he, as such, should aim at the life of his master. Attila might rightly consider himself the lord of the whole Roman Empire. His authority had been considerably enhanced among his own people by the discovery about that time of a sword buried in the ground, which was regarded as the weapon of the god of war. It was not until Theodosius died, 28th of July 450, that these wretched conditions altered. His successor, the efficient emperor Marcion, refused, as soon as he succeeded to the throne, to continue the payment of the tribute to the king of the Huns, and the Western Empire followed his example. The outbreak of war was also due to the conduct of Gracia Justa Honoria, the sister of the Western Emperor Valentinian. She secretly offered herself as wife to the king of the Huns, but the fulfilment of the offer was refused because Attila demanded that half of the Western Empire should be given up to her as her inheritance from her father. Attila hereupon determined to take possession of the Western Empire and of Gaul first of all, for here he might reckon with certainty on the support of the Franks, who, being split up into two sections on account of dynastic hostilities, called for his intervention, and he could in all probability count on at least the benevolent neutrality of the Visigoths. The story that Gaiseric, out of fear of Theodoric's vengeance, stirred up Attila to make war against the Visigoths is certainly a fable, for the African kingdom had nothing to fear from an attack on this side. Nevertheless, the Vandal king may have had a hand in the matter in order to weaken the West Roman Empire still further. Supposing, however, an agreement between the Goths and the Romans to be possible, Attila wrote to Theodoric, as well as to the Western Emperor, that he was not going to take the field against them, but against their enemies. The history of the Hunnic expedition, which ended in Attila's defeat on the campus Moriacus near Troyes, has already been told in another connection, page 280. Without being followed by the victors, the Hunnic army returned to Hungary. Attila did not venture to repeat the expedition into Gaul. On the contrary, in the following year, after having made good his losses, he turned towards Italy, where he had not to fear Germanic heroism. Without encountering any resistance, the Hunnic army crossed the Julian Alps in the spring of 452. After a long siege, Aquileia was taken by storm and destroyed, after which the most important fortresses of Upper Italy, with the exception of Ravenna, easily fell into the hands of the enemy. A great many of the inhabitants of the terribly devastated country sought refuge on the unassailable islands of the lagoons along the Adriatic coast. Yet the real foundation of Venice, which tradition has connected with the Hunnic invasion, can only be traced back to the invasion of the Lombards. After this, Attila bethought himself of marching against Rome, but famine and disease, which broke out in his army, and the arrival in Italy of succour from the Eastern Empire, as well as superstitious fear, since the Visigoth king, Alaric, 
had died shortly after his capture of the Eternal City kept him from carrying out his plan. Therefore, an embassy of the Romans, led by Pope Leo I, appeared in his camp on the Yelinko to induce him to withdraw. He willingly shrewed himself ready to conclude peace and retire. A contemporary, the chronicler Prosper Tiro, who at that time was living in the papal service at Rome, has ascribed the retreat of the scourge of God to the influence of Leo's powerful personality and later ecclesiastical tradition has naturally further enhanced the holy man's ostensible service and adorned it with all manner of supernatural circumstances. But a dispassionate historical inspection will not allow us to ascribe the saving of Italy solely to the influence of the Pope. Having returned home, Attila demanded of Marcion the tribute paid by Theodosius and, on the refusal of the emperor, prepared for war against eastern Rome. But his sudden death prevented the realisation of his scheme. He died of hemorrhage when he was celebrating his wedding with a maiden named Ildiko, the Kreimhild of the Nibelungenleid. The inheritance was divided among his sons, those mentioned by name being Elak, Dengisish and Ernak, the youngest, Attila's favourite. But with this was foreshadowed the downfall of the Hunnic power, which was too much dependent on the personal quality of its leader to be able to endure. Of the domestic life and polity of the Huns, we have also accurate knowledge through the genuine fragment of Priscus. The king's headquarters were on the Hungarian steppe, between Thais and Kuros, and covered a large area which was enclosed by a circular wooden fence. In the middle stood the royal residence, also fenced round, a wooden erection consisting of one single hall, Attila's private and public dwelling, of ingenious architecture and furnished within with great magnificence. Among the king's circle, the Lugardes were prominent. A nobility founded on birth and service, these enjoyed the highest consideration with the ruler, and the right to choose from the booty, the best spoils and the richest prisoners, and they formed a kind of council of state. Out of their midst, the bodyguard, the military leaders and the envoys were taken. The highest position amongst them was occupied by Onegesius, Attila's right hand and first minister, who lived in a palace at the entrance to the court residence. Besides Huns, there were also Germans and Romans among the Lugardes, who on account of their intelligence and culture, enjoyed special consideration. At the king's court, therefore, the Latin and Gothic tongues were in predominant use together with the Hunnic. Attila ruled over his people in a wholly patriarchal manner. The administration of justice was executed through him personally in the simplest way, always just, without respect of persons. The freedom and legal protection, which every subject enjoyed, caused many a Roman to leave his home and settle with the uncivilised barbarians, who knew no kind of taxation. The Huns kept, as before, their character as nomadic horsemen. They were in their element on the steppes. Life in towns was repugnant to them. Justly appreciating these conditions, Attila had made no attempt to effect a change in the mode of life of his people, and never thought of removing to civilised districts and setting up there a new state. His object was fully attained by keeping the Romans in subjection and making them fill his treasury. The end of section 44